Well, good morning, church. Nice to see you here this morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, we've been in an ongoing study in the series of Hebrews, or in the book of Hebrews, and uh, if you were with us, last week we were in chapter 3, and there was a, a pretty stern warning. There was a warning last week that we want to be very careful, we want to pay close attention that we don't follow the pattern of the Israelites who came before us. If you were here, you'll remember that the Israelites were people that were led by God, uh, who saw him work in power, and yet never had the opportunity to enter into Canaan, into the land that had been promised them because long before they ever arrived on the shores of the Jordan, they stopped seeing God, they stopped hearing him, they stopped trusting him, they stopped worshiping, and they ended up not following him. And so the writer to the Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, then last week looked at us and said, we want to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap, that we don't turn away from the living God, that we don't find in ourselves a a wicked, unbelieving heart, right? And there was also uh, an encouragement in that text to then be exhorting one another uh, every day, that every day we need to be involved in each other's lives. We talked last week about the fact that that word exhortation is kind of a weird, sort of a churchy word, right? And if you don't have a context for it, you don't really know what the instruction is. We said last week that the idea of exhortation is exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is doing on almost every page in almost every chapter, that exhortation has within it the idea of both warning and encouragement. That those two things sort of happen simultaneously, that there is a warning on these pages, but there is also an encouragement. So last week in chapter 3, he warned us not to fall away, not to turn away or to fall into the same trap that the Israelites did. Now as we get into Hebrews chapter 4, we see the encouragement side of that same coin. The encouragement side of that same coin. He'll say to us here in the first 13 verses, or the first 12 verses of uh, 13 is what we're studying today. In in chapter 4, he'll say, but the promise of God's rest that they lost, that they missed out on, the promise of God's rest still stands. It's still available. It's still something that can be entered into by the people of God. Now, I would guess that as much as rest is sort of talked about in chapter 4, that even as Joel was talking about it, there is something in me that kind of happens in my heart where, like, we live in a world that's pretty restless, right? You watch the news, you work your job, you live in your neighborhoods, you, you understand what's happening. There's a sense in our world of like a constant sort of stress and restlessness. Like we have to go on vacations to get a vacation after our vacation, right? Because we're still stressed out. There's a sense in which we're all trying to find rest. People spend tons of money trying to rest, trying to relax, trying to get rid of some of the the stress and the anxiety and the fear and the worry that plagues our society. And yet, we still find ourselves lacking rest, we still find ourselves feeling kind of in an ongoing way stressed out. We, we try even to rest every night, but it doesn't always work, right? You lay your head down on the pillow and you hope that you're going to get some rest, but it doesn't always work. I had a, a situation a couple of years ago at my house in Long Beach when we were living over there where uh, we had some new neighbors move in. And uh, one particular week, we were just kind of getting to know them, but one particular week, they agreed to sort of babysit or dog sit their friend's dog. So they brought this dog into their backyard, but they didn't want the dog in the house. And I didn't actually ever see the dog. I just heard the dog constantly. The dog barked all day, every day. This dog made all kinds of racket. I mean, it was 
driving me crazy. And it got to the point, I kind of hit this breaking point where one night the dog had been barking. We went to bed at like midnight. The dog is barking. It won't stop. The dog barked until 4 a.m. At 4 a.m. I had not slept at all. And I'm thinking like, I got to go to work the next day. I got things I have to do. Like I'm not getting any rest because of the stupid dog. So I, I kind of I kind of snapped. And right, I throw the covers off. I go out in my backyard and I walk over by the fence and I'm like, shut up, right? You stupid dog, you have been barking all night. You won't shut up. I have to work tomorrow. This is a family neighborhood. I got kids. And now listen, the thing is, I wasn't trying to explain myself to the dog, right? You get that? Like, I was kind of shouting at the dog, but I was also sort of by extension sort of shouting at my neighbor, right? Shut up. I'm just yelling. And finally, when I got all of my frustration out, uh, I went back. I actually was able to fall asleep because I was exhausted from all the yelling. But what was funny, um, the next morning we're sitting around the breakfast table and uh, my oldest son, Jack, he goes, did you guys hear what happened last night? And, uh, and I was like, you mean that stupid dog was barking all night? He goes, no. He goes, the new neighbor, he goes, he seems like such a nice man. But he goes, at like four in the morning, he got up and he was screaming at the dog like he wanted to kill it. And he's shouting at it. He goes, I don't know why he didn't just give it some food or something instead of screaming at it. He's like, I don't actually think he's a very nice man at all. And I was like, yeah, he doesn't seem like a very nice man. I didn't know. I didn't want to own it. I felt too embarrassed that he was talking about me because you know how it is when you're stressed out and when you're anxious and when you're angry and frustrated, rest is not happening, right? It's the opposite of rest. So we come to Hebrews four and the writer looks at us and said, look, be careful not to fall away like the people did, but the rest of God is still obtainable. It is still available. And I, I want you to feel that sense of excitement and, and sort of anticipation of like, can it be true? Can it be true that rest is possible for human beings? Because our culture seems to say that it isn't. And yet the writer of the Hebrews says very clearly that the rest is available. He, he's giving us hope in the rest of God. He says, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now I'll admit at the beginning, this is a very complicated text, right? Even as Joel is reading it, you might have been like, what is he talking about? Because there's there are multiple quotes from Psalm 95, which he quoted last week in our study as well. But the, the text itself just feels very convoluted. It's very hard to follow his line of thinking. We understand that he's talking about rest, but it sort of seems like he's talking about rest in a couple of different ways. That's true. So here's what we're going to try and do. Before we can really get into the encouragement in the text, we kind of have to sort of get our arms around the idea of rest as it's being declared in the text. So I sort of want to walk slowly through it. He talks about rest in a couple of different ways. And for us to understand the rest that is available to us, we have to sort of see how all of these things overlap and intersect. Does that make sense? He begins by talking about the rest of God. The rest of of God, the divine rest that God himself enjoys and participates in, that's the first thing he references. He says here in verse three, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. He's pointing us initially to the rest of God. And it's, it's sort of funny in the text, it sounds like he doesn't know where the reference is, right? He goes, ah, somewhere in the Bible it says that on the seventh day God rested. He, it's not that he doesn't know where Genesis 2-1 is, but rather that he's writing to a context, he's writing to a congregation of people, a group of people, who would have been very familiar with the creation account. They would have been very familiar with Genesis 1 and 2. And so it's sort of that offhanded way of going, you guys all know, I don't have to tell you the reference, you all know that it says in Genesis 2-1 that God rested on the seventh day. He's pointing us first, he wants us to sort of wrap our minds around the idea that God himself rested. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation account. It tells us about the way in which God created the earth in six days. It says in each one of those days that there was a morning and an evening. But when we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus 31, 17, talking about the Sabbath for us, says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It's interesting to think about God resting. Did he rest because he needed rest? No. It's not that he was exhausted or that he'd worn himself out or that he'd expended all of his creative energy. We recognize that on the seventh day, God could have continued to create. He's infinitely creative. He's infinitely powerful. He could have just kept creating, right? But he stops intentionally. He stops and says, it's good. It's worth noting that the first six days of creation, the six days of creation have a morning and an evening, but the seventh, the day of rest, does not have an evening. There is no close to the rest of God. The Sabbath rest of God continues. It's a continual rest because the work of creation is finished. So the writer to the Hebrews says the rest that he's inviting us into isn't just a rest he's created for us. It's not just a rest that he sort of gives to us as a gift. It's not the rest of, you know, dying and being put into the ground, the rest that God invites us into is his rest. It's his. First and foremost, it's God's rest that he currently enjoys and has been enjoying since creation was finished that he will perpetually enjoy and that he invites us to participate with him in. That's the rest we're talking about. God's rest. And he gives the quote twice, back to Hebrews chapter 4. He says, it's interesting, he says, he quotes Psalm 95 twice, which makes it a little confusing. In verse 3, for we have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The first time he quotes it, the emphasis is on them. Those Israelites who did not believe, who did not trust God, and didn't enter the promised land. The first reference is to them. So what the author is saying here is, God said they can't enter the rest. God said in Psalm 95, because of my wrath, they will not enter it. But he didn't say no human beings can enter it. He didn't say my rest doesn't exist anymore. He didn't say no one will ever be allowed to rest because of their wickedness. He said what? They shall not be able to enter it. So the author first says, according to that, the rest is still obtainable and available for anyone who isn't them. The second time he quotes Psalm 95, there in verse 5, he's just said this. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. 
And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. When he quotes it the second time from Psalm 95, the emphasis isn't on them who weren't able to obtain it. The emphasis there is on the fact that it's his. They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. But that leaves the door wide open for the rest of us to enter into his rest. The first kind of rest that the author is talking about is God's divine rest. And it's, it's similar in, in uh, characterization to the rest that Jesus accomplishes when he completes his work on the cross, right? In our study in the book of Hebrews, we looked in Hebrews chapter 1 about the fact that after he had made a sacrifice, an atonement for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. What is the indication there? The indication is that it's a completed work. There is no more sacrifice necessary. There is no more work that Jesus needs to do in order to extend to us this rest. Jesus was finished, right? Finished with the work he came to accomplish and he rested after that. Indicative of work that is complete. God rested. It's his rest first and foremost. That's not the only kind of rest it talks about in Hebrews 4. It then goes on to talk about the literal entry of the people into Canaan or into the promised land. Look at what it says next. Hebrews chapter 4, look at what it says in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What's he saying? Well, he's already talked about the divine rest of God that God himself enjoys, he invites us into. Now he's talking about the physical, like the physical entry of the people into Canaan, into the promised land. We talked in our study in Exodus about the fact that that generation grew up with the promises of God in their mind. Their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents had grown up and lived in Egypt as slaves and died waiting for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promise was to take them out of their enslavement and to lead them into the promised land, and yet generations of Israelites didn't ever see that fulfilled. This generation did. They were raised up in power. God led them out from their slave drivers. He conquered Pharaoh and his army. He leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground. And as we saw last week, by the time the people get to the shores of the Jordan, they've so disassociated themselves with trusting God that they don't follow him. And they lose the opportunity to cross the Jordan River and see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They lose it. But you might look at that and go, yeah, but those people lost it, all but two of them, Joshua and Caleb, they were the two that got to enter into the promised land. Everybody else, their bodies fell in the desert, as it says in in Hebrews 3. But there is that next generation, the descendants of those people, who did get to physically enter into the promised land, right? Joshua led them into the promised land. So isn't that fulfilled, right? Isn't that promise fulfilled because they entered in? The writer of Hebrews chapter 4 says the entrance of the descendants of those initial Israelites into the the promised land is not the fulfillment of the whole promise. It's not the fulfillment of the whole promise. Yes, Joshua led them in, but that wasn't enough. If it had been enough, there is no reason that later when Psalm 95 was written, right, by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, later when Psalm 95 was written, there would be no reason for for the psalmist to say, today, today if you hear the word of the Lord, do not harden your heart so that you can enter his rest. If the, if the rest that Joshua led the people into was the fulfillment of the promise, there would be no reason to repeat the promise later. So he says what we learn from that is while they occupied the land, when David writes the psalm, 
and says, it is still possible to enter his rest. David is literally writing from that land. He's in it. And he says, don't let your heart be hardened when you hear the voice of the Lord so that you can enter his rest. What's that mean? Well, it means there's still, it's just a type. It's a foreshadowing that's pointing ahead to an ultimate rest, an eternal rest. Not just the physical land that the people wanted to live on that God had promised them, but an eternal rest. So we see God's divine rest that he enjoys. We see the physical, uh, the physical occupation of Canaan, but that's not all because that's just pointing to something later. And then he talks about the rest for the people of God. He says in verse eight, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. In verse three, it had already said, for we who have believed enter that rest. And now in verse 10, it says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what's it talking about with regard to rest? It's talking about the fact that we have the ability to rest in the power and provision, the the completed work of Christ. So much of our striving and so much of our effort, so much of our anxiety and our fear and our doubt and our stress comes from trying to do life on our own, trying to live good lives, trying to live good religious looking lives, right? And he says, no, that's not what this rest is about at all. It's not about pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps. It's not about putting in your own effort. It's about resting in the completed work of Christ. Think about verses like Philippians chapter four, verse six. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious, but relinquish those things to God and find his peace. Romans chapter five, verse one says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came and he did what we couldn't do. Each and every one of us was lost in sin. We were separated from God because we'd fallen short of the purpose for which we were created. We were striving in our own effort and in our own power to try and obtain resurrection life and we were incapable of doing that. God didn't want us to be separated from him and so Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself. He sheds his blood and dies on the cross paying the penalty for our sin. He rises from the dead and in so doing he extends to us, each and every one of us, resurrection life by his grace. And through faith, he gives that to us. And we find peace with God. We were enemies of God. We were separated from God. We were dead in our sin. And we find peace with God. Reconciliation through the completed work of Jesus. So there's a sense in which he says we can enter his rest. There is a rest from all anxiety and all fear and all striving and all doubt. Because Jesus has completed this work. But he's not even just talking about that sort of peace we can have right now. He's also pointing ahead to perfect rest, to eternal rest. He's talking about the fact that for those of us who've received the gift of resurrection life by the death and resurrection of Christ, that we will enter into a promised land. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity. You know, so often people think about Christianity in terms of, well, it's just a good way to sort of organize your life. It's a good way to live, you know? You just sort of follow Jesus and he, and he teaches you to be a better dad and a better husband and a better all these things. It's like, no, there is a great future hope 
that we will live this life and we will be empowered by the Spirit of God. We are forgiven by the work of Christ. We can rest in that, but there is an even greater rest coming, a rest beyond this life when we will cease our striving and we will cease our toil, when we will cease our work and we will enter into a promised land in the presence of God, a place called heaven. That is a future hope for us. It says in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. Amen. There is a a hope and a rest that we are afforded now because of the completed work of Christ, but it is looking forward to an eternal rest. My wife and I uh, had a, we took a trip to Mexico when, when my son, my first son was really young, and I made the mistake of choosing to drive myself, right? We, got a, we drove our own car down into Mexico, and it, it was not a uh, relaxing trip. It was a stressful trip, right? Because I don't know how to read Spanish, so I was getting all the signs wrong. I don't understand how the traffic works. Uh, I, we got pulled over by a police officer who said that I ran the stop sign, which I definitely didn't, right? But he comes up to the car, and he's like, hey, you ran the stop sign, so that's going to be $200. And I was like... I don't have $200. I said, can I write you a check? He goes, senor, you cannot write a check. And I was like, uh, I don't, I mean, I literally don't have $200. He goes, well, then I have to take you to jail. And I was like, uh, I got a baby in the back seat. He goes, oh, you shouldn't have run the stop sign. I said, I didn't run the stop sign. He goes, well, if I take you to jail, you're going to be there for a couple of days because the judge doesn't come in until next week. You know what I'm like? I literally don't know what you want me to do. He goes, well, I like the look of your watch. So I gave him my watch and he let me go, right? So I've been shook down. I, didn't, I felt stressed. I'm like white knuckled on the, on the steering wheel. It was like a stressful experience. But my wife and I went back to Mexico for our 20th anniversary, right? And when I booked the room in Mexico for our 20th anniversary, there was an option on the website to hire a driver to take you from the airport to the resort, right? And so I, that was like the best hundred bucks I ever spent, right? <laughs> We get out of the airport in Mexico and there's a chauffeur there with a, this black like suburban. He opens up the door for us. We get in. He's got like cold water. He's got like a nice refreshing towel to wet our foreheads with. He's got soothing music playing. And we get in the car and he drives us the 45 minutes to the resort. Can I tell you, it was the most restful drive of my life. But what's weird about that is that outside of that black suburban, all the same crazy stuff was still going on, right? I still didn't know how to read any of the signs. I still was really scared that the police were going to take my watch or throw me in jail, right? I didn't understand the traffic. People are honking and yelling. But listen, I didn't worry about that at all. I sat in the back and sipped my water and listened to my music because someone else was in control. Someone who understand that scenario, who knew better than I did how to navigate my circumstances. And not only was that car ride restful in the midst of all the turmoil, but I knew and looked forward to the fact that he was taking me someplace ultimately where nobody would be driving at all, right? We got out of the car and we entered into the resort and we just rested for a week, right? It was beautiful. 
That's a, a picture or an idea of what this looks like, resting in Christ, this rest of God, his divine rest that he himself enjoys, that he invites us into, is both the ability to relax from our striving and our fear and our anxiety and our doubt and to allow Jesus to be the leader and director, the Lord on this course. Now, there's still all kinds of crazy stuff happening in the world, but he understands how to navigate it better than we ever will. Can you imagine how crazy it would have been for me in the back of that black Suburban to keep leaning forward and trying to grab the wheel and do it myself or to make that chauffeur get out and let me drive? That would be stupid. And yet that is a close approximation to what many of us are doing with the Lord Jesus in our lives, pretending like somehow we know better how to live our lives. We know better how to solve the solutions that stress us than he does. Ultimately, this path we're on today that we can rest in today because of who Christ is is leading us to a permanent and more perfect rest even than that where there will be no tears and there will be no crying and there will be no sorrow. So that's why it's this rest. It's the place where these rests intersect. The, the, the rest of God, the foreshadowing of the rest of the people of Israel and the rest of the people of God where those things intersect, this is what is available to us. But there's an urgency to it and I don't want you to miss it this morning. Look at the very first verse. He says, back to Hebrews chapter four, verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. Well, the implication of saying while the promise of his rest still stands, the implication is this promise does not remain open forever. There is a day coming at which a decision must be made. And the day looks like this. The, the today that it talks about in Psalm 95 ends when either your physical life ceases, right? You die or the Lord Jesus returns in glory to take us to be with him. One of those two things is in your future. But right now, before those two things occur, the promise of his rest is still available. But there is a point after which it is not possible to enter into his rest. There is a point of decision that has to be made, and after which there is no longer a promise. So there's an urgency. He says, therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Well, that seems kind of weird, doesn't it? Like, it seems like so much of the Bible and so much of, like, pop Christianity is about having no fear, right? We got nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. No fear. It's bumper stickered on everybody's cars, right? And yet here in the text it says, because the promise of his rest still stands, we're to fear, it says, fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, if you're here going, well, I don't think Christians should have any fear. You're right, except with one caveat. There is no reason for most of us to fear anything at all. There is no reason for those of us for whom Christ is driving, right? For whom Christ is the Lord of our lives. There is no reason for us to have fear except in this one category. The one place, the one place where fear is appropriate in the life of a believer, a follower of Christ. The one place where fear is appropriate is we have to fear unbelief. We have to fear unbelief. What, what is it that caused them to miss out on the rest? What is it that caused them to miss out on the promise of God? The Canaan that they were marching towards, why did they miss it? It talks about disobedience, but disobedience is just a symptom of the problem. The problem is unbelief. It says since the promise of his rest still stands, fear, fear, you and I should have a healthy fear, a, a, a sense of fear about unbelief in our own lives. We want to be looking into the depths of who we are and scouting out the places where unbelief has reared its head or where it's taken root. He says, fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them. 
But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He says, look, we both heard the gospel, right? Both, both heard the gospel. And in some ways, our reception of the gospel is greater than theirs. What did they hear? They heard the message of God through Moses where God said, I will deliver you from your enslavement and your slave drivers. I will lead you into a promised land. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will be with you, right? That was the gospel they heard. It was a a foreshadowing of the time when Jesus would come in the incarnation and say, I will deliver you from your enslavement to sin and from your slave driver. I will set you free and lead you into a land of promise, resurrection life, and I will dwell with you and be your God and you will be my people, But see, the difference between the gospel they heard and the gospel we hear is that we see the gospel fulfilled. We understand it completely because Jesus has completed that work. They saw it in anticipation. And yet, they heard the gospel and they didn't unite it with faith. They weren't united in faith with those who listened and believed. Well, what's it talking about here? You see, it's not enough to simply believe in God, to believe that God exists, that there is a God, that he created the earth. It's not enough to simply believe that. The Bible says, in fact, that even demons believe there's a God. I don't think any of you believe that demons are entering into eternal rest. Well, what's the distinction? The distinction is trusting in God, that belief that leads to trust. You see, restlessness only exists Where trust is gone. But where trust is, we find rest. I think it was uh, Dr. Kennedy famously used to tell this story where he'd say uh, there was a guy who strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Have you heard this story? There's this guy who strings a tightrope across Niagara Falls and he, uh, it's kind of an impromptu deal. He gets out on the tightrope and he starts to walk back and forth and there's a few people, tourists, that are kind of watching and it's like pretty impressive. Then he starts to run back and forth, you know, and like a small crowd starts to gather. The guy starts doing crazy stuff, like he's doing somersaults on the, on the wire over Niagara Falls. People are clapping. He does a cartwheel. He does a backwards cartwheel. He comes over to the side, he grabs a wheelbarrow, and he's running back and forth on a tightrope, strung over Niagara Falls. The crowd's going bonkers, right? They can't believe that they just sort of walked up on this impromptu show, but the guy's amazing. Well, he walks over to the crowd, right? They're all kind of standing on the edge. He's got this wheelbarrow in front of him. He says, how many of you here this morning believe that I can walk back across this tightrope with a full-grown man in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd's like, yeah, of course you can do anything, you know? And there's one guy in the front that's like, you can definitely do it. He points at the guy and he goes, get in the wheelbarrow, <laughs> right? Uh, that's a, kind of a whole different thing. Uh, I mean, it's all well and good to say, I believe you can do it. I have confidence in you, but I ain't getting in the wheelbarrow. That's a whole different thing. Well, there are a lot of us who from a distance go, oh, I believe that God is the creator of the universe. I believe that he loves us so much. I believe that he's given us his word to be a guide. I believe that he extends a life of peace and rest to those who trust in him. But all of it is, is just simply talking about things about God from a distance. And that isn't what God has called us to. The people of Israel knew who God was. They had seen him work in power. They could rearticulate spectacular miracles they had seen. But when it came to the Jordan River and time to cross into the promised land, they did not trust him. And so the the hope and the encouragement in Hebrews chapter four is this. While the promise of his rest still stands, fear, fear unbelief. It's coupled with what it says in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest 
so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So you go, well, you were just telling us we don't have to strive, that resting is ceasing from striving, right? The rest of God that comes in Christ is that we're no longer trying to accomplish or do good deeds. That's all true. But there is still a striving, what? A striving to trust. It's not a striving to try and perform or to prove something to God, but a striving, an earnest effort to get in the wheelbarrow. An earnest effort to relinquish control of your life to one who knows how to navigate the highways and byways of your journey better than you do. We need to fear. We need to strive lest we fall away, lest we turn away, lest we miss out on this rest, the rest of God that he has always enjoyed, that he invites us into, that the Israelites foreshadowed the rest of the people of God. And then it's kind of weird here. At the end of this chapter, in verses 12 and 13, it says this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That sort of seems like a non sequitur, right? Like, what, what, okay, what does that have to do with what we were just talking about? The word of God is living and active, piercing like a two-edged sword, cuts to the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It sees the intentions of people's heart, and then we will all be accountable, naked and exposed before him to who we must give, must give account. Like, I don't understand how these two go together. Well, the way these are linked goes, again, all the way back to verse one. Go all the way back to verse one again. In one, it says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That word seem is kind of weird, isn't it? Doesn't it seem like it should say, let us fear, lest none of us fail to reach it? The seemingness of it doesn't seem like it's relevant at all. Who cares what it seems like? The word that's translated seem there can be effectively translated seem, but seem means something else to us than it did in this context. So to us, when we see the word seem, it sort of feels like have the appearance of one who hasn't fallen away. Have the appearance of one who's entered into his rest. It feels like a call to imitate something. But that's exactly the opposite of what the word is saying. When it says seem, it means you'll be accountable for or there will be an assessment for. He says, since the promise of this rest still stands, let us fear, right? Let us fear um, since it stands, lest, lest any of you should be assessed to have failed to reach it, would be a better translation. It is, a, it is seemingness, but it's more about the fact that there's an assessment. So why does 12 and 13 sit where it does? Well, it's linked to that, to that word. Because you see, we are all accountable for what we've seen in God's word. We're accountable for what we've heard. We're accountable for God's word that was revealed to us. Remember, the beginning of Hebrews, he starts by saying, God has spoken to us through a variety of different ways, and now he's spoken to us through his son. And there is an accountability to the spoken word of God, to the delivered word of God that cuts to the core of us, that lays us open, that discerns us and our intentions. And we will be accountable, exposed and naked in front of him who can see everything about us. Why why does it have that here? Well, there is a tendency in us to want to sort of put on a mask, 
You might look at this and go, I thought this text was about rest. It doesn't feel very restful to have it say that Jesus can see all the truth about me, that he sees me naked and exposed. That's embarrassing. Or it's more stressful, creates more anxiety. The fact that my intentions are divided by the word of God and it can discern the the inner inclination of my heart, that doesn't make me feel rested. It makes me feel stressed. I'm more stressed now because Jesus can see the truth about me, right? Well, the reason why the, the, the transparency that Jesus brings, his transparent view of you, the reason why that brings stress is because we all work so hard to posture. We all work so hard to put on a false front. We all work so hard to put on a religious show. The bottom line, and you all, you all know this, is that it is possible to fool everybody into thinking that you're a Christian. It's possible for you to fool your neighbor sitting next to you this morning. It's possible for you to fool your spouse, the pastors of your church, whatever. You can convince everybody by going through the motions that you are a faithful person, that you are a believer, that you're trusting in God. You can sort of put on that facade, but there will always be two people who know the truth. The two people who will always know the truth about you are you yourself, because you know how hard you've worked to decorate that mask you wear so well, You'll always know if you're a liar. You'll always know if you're a fraud and a fake. You can fool everybody else, but you will have to live with the truth of the fact that there is no true faith there. The other person who sees you, even when nobody else does, the other one before whom you're bare and exposed is the Lord Jesus. He doesn't see your mask. He doesn't care about your posturing or your facade. The Lord Jesus sees you, the mess That is you and I. He sees our brokenness and our flaws. He sees our selfishness and our greed. He he sees us. We are exposed before him. And you go, why does that bring me any kind of hope? Why do I find any rest in that? Well, the good news is he sees you in your brokenness, in your rottenness, in your inability to save yourself, and he still invites you to enter into his rest. He still came to the earth and took your sin upon himself. He died in your place and wants to adopt you into his family Even though you are naked and exposed before him, even though his word cuts to the very division of bone and marrow, he knows you better than anybody ever will, and he loves you still. And there is great rest in that. There is great rest in that. Why? Because you can take the mask off and throw it away. You don't need it. You could fool everybody else, but you're not accountable to them. You're accountable to his word and to the Son. So there's peace and rest that comes. He invites us to enter into his rest by fearing unbelief, by striving towards faith and trust, getting in the wheelbarrow, right? Trusting in him who knows us intimately and loves us still. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I am guessing that there are some of you in this place who feel anything but rest that there are some of you in this place who feel the anxiety of trying to keep a mask up or a facade in view, and you're tired. There are some of you who maybe turn on the news and feel stressed and anxious about what you see in the world or what you see in our country or what you see in your neighborhood, and you're trying to wrestle control, and you're trying to navigate the streets of your life and you're feeling incapable of doing it, can I tell you that the promise of his rest still stands? And while the promise of his rest still stands, make every effort to trust in him, to not fall into the pattern of our forefathers who didn't believe and disobeyed, but instead to trust him and allow him, by his grace, to usher you into both his rest today and his rest 
in heaven and in eternity, a perfect rest that waits for those who believe. Will you stop trying to do it on your own and trust in the Lord Jesus this morning? God, I pray that you would help us to be people who find the peace and the rest in having our lives exposed to one who sees us completely and loves us still. God, I pray that you would lead us by your power to fall on our knees before you and be recipients of your great grace that we would enter your rest and that we would not miss it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.